We have Bibles in the back if anybody did not bring their Bible and wants to read along with. We're in 1 Peter, and we're reading in chapter 2. And in our scriptures today, Peter is talking about the privilege of being in Christ. It is a privilege. And he begins to give us a foretaste of why we need to remember that this is a privilege. Because being in Christ is actually a disadvantage in this world. There are people who don't like Christ. just don't like him. And because they don't like him, they're not going to like you either. Just the other day, I was talking to a doctor in Birmingham who was talking with his supervisor about future plans. And he was saying that, you know, he wanted to sort of keep his options open because he was intending to go into ministry at a certain point and be able to stay a consulting doctor and that kind of stuff. And his supervisor said, you know what? Do not say a word about that. Because if word gets out that you want to be in ministry, you will be unemployable in Birmingham. And my friend goes, what? And in fact, he found out that there were three or four other doctors who disliked him because he's talking about God. And those guys didn't even want him on the staff, wanted nothing to do with him. And my friend was oblivious to this. He is circumspect. But he realizes, okay, I have to play my cards close to my chest. I have to be careful. I have to be as wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, because I could lose my job like that. And people have lost their jobs. We're finding it increasingly difficult to just say, hey, I believe in Jesus. There are people who don't like that. Now, what if you're not aware of all the privileges and the favor and the blessing that you have in Christ? If you're not aware of it, then you're going to start to think like these other guys that don't like Jesus. And don't like anybody who sticks up for him. You're going to say, wow, this is hard. This is a drag. Why would you want to follow Jesus if it's all uphill? If nobody likes you. And it's not true. People like you. We like you. Your mother likes you. But you're not going to get a slap on the back and say, wow, following Jesus. Go! I don't believe in that junk, but congratulations, go for it. Do you ever get that? Kind of a pat on the head? Well, dear, if that's what makes you happy, I'm for you. You believe in unicorns too? Oh, aren't you precious? There's another kind of subtle sort of a, and you want to go subtly back, but you can't because you're a Christian. 
We don't do that. We just have to take it here, and then we take it here. All right. So what we're going to do today is look at the supreme value of being in Christ. And we're going to look at those who have got Christ completely wrong and what's going to happen to them. So I'm reading in 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 4. And it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now the context for all of this privilege and blessing is in Scripture. That is, Peter's not making this stuff up. This is all a fulfillment of the promises of God. And this idea of coming to him in verse 4 is actually a continuation of verse 3, tasting that the Lord is gracious. And that all comes from Psalm 34, verse 8. And it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him or takes refuge in him. And in verse 3, Peter alluded to the tasting. And now in verse 4, he's talking about taking refuge in the Lord. That all comes from Psalm 34, verse 8. Verse 6 is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. It literally means there in the Hebrew, will not be disturbed. And so you're frantic and running around. It's like, okay, we're cool. 
We have a foundation that doesn't go wobbly. It's solid. And here we get the idea that the Messiah is like a precious stone that the Lord is laying in Jerusalem for a building. Now, Peter quotes Psalm 118 there in verse 7. And it says there, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And marvelous means miraculous. And here's the deal. God lays a stone. It is the cornerstone. It is the most important stone in a building. Everything is keyed off that stone. And yet, builders rejected that stone, said, no, that doesn't fit there. Get it out of here. And what God has done is to reject their rejection. And he says, no, I am going to put this here, and it's going to stay here. Thank you very much. This is the miraculous thing. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 8. There in verse 8. This is what it says in Isaiah. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. As a trap and a snare, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now the point there is that the stone that the Lord has laid over everybody's objections cannot be ignored. That is, you can't say, well, I'm, so what? Stone is there? I'm overruled? Big deal. I'm still going to go around it. But the problem is you trip over that stone and then you go fall. And it's worse than fall and go boom. Way worse. And then Peter quotes Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that's the designation for God's people. An entire nation of kings, an entire nation of priests, and special to God. That is, these are mine, and they're not for anybody else. They're mine. That's cool. The final quotes there in verse 10 are from Hosea, the prophet. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Hosea's wife conceived again and bore a daughter, and God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly Take them away. Now, when she had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. 
And then later on in Hosea, chapter 2, it says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. Now, Peter applies this to those who are in Christ. We were not God's people. We had not received mercy. But now we have received mercy. And now we are God's people. Okay, that's the scriptural context for everything he's talking about. So let's go back now and look at these privileges. What it means to be in Christ. And the first thing he mentions here is refuge, taking refuge. You know what a refuge is for? It's kind of like a bomb shelter. When they're dropping those bombs, you know, you're in danger. But if you go into the bomb shelter, you're safe. All the danger is on the outside. Inside, there is protection, shelter. You're not going to get hurt. Now, we face a greater danger than bombs. And you know, it only takes one bomb to wreck your day. But there's a bigger danger than bombs, and that is sin. See, bombs just blow you up and you're done. But sin condemns you to eternal punishment. And if you think about eternal punishment, you realize, I don't want to go there. But you have taken refuge in Christ. And that means all that punishment that you deserve has fallen upon him. And he's like that shield that comes between you and all that condemnation, and it doesn't fall on you. It fell on him. And he has absorbed it completely in himself. So for the one who takes refuge in Jesus, there's no more condemnation. That wrath from God, that that God is really capable of, is not going to be poured out in you because it was poured out on Christ. And you're in Christ, and there you are. You're not in danger anymore. Ever, ever again. Even if you sin while you are a Christian. Now this blows some people's minds because they think, no. I've accepted Jesus, so that's okay, but now I have to be good, because if I'm not good, I'm dead. And I've actually sat and talked with some people and showed them, you know what, you're wrong. You're free. And even if you sin, you just come back to Jesus. He is your refuge. And he will cleanse you of your sin and forgive you and restore you. No purgatory, 
No penance. No sit in the corner for half an hour, and then I'll let you out. Nothing. You think, well, wait a minute. Does that mean I can just go out and sin like crazy? Well, do anything you want, but you're going to find out. You hate sin. You want to be free from it. So this is like, you don't have to live in sin anymore. I'm all for that. Yahoo! So here's a refuge. But more than that, we still have to live in this world, don't we? And we get beat up in this world. We have bosses that are not reasonable. We have deadlines. We have things that go wrong in our lives. Practical things happen. My oven stops working. My tire goes flat. But see, God is a refuge for us. God doesn't stay in the four walls and says, well, okay, I'll be here, and you go out there, dear, and good luck. Hope the wolves don't get ya. Unlike a bomb shelter, our refuge goes with us. And this is the most fabulous thing to experience, is that he is with you. He is with you. That's who he is. And it is wonderful that wherever you go, whatever situation you're in, he's there as your refuge. Your heart is protected. Things happen. Yeah, but he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So, everywhere you go, there's a bomb shelter. That's fabulous. Now, he goes on here. This blessing of being transformed to be like Christ. And you say, what? There was no word transformed in this text. Where do you get that? And he says in verse 4, you come to him as to a living stone. That's kind of strange right there. That comes from Deuteronomy 32 and some other places. That the Lord is our rock. And by rock, not just, you know, a pebble, a boulder. We're talking something like a mountain. Something huge and immovable. And that's a foundation for your life. That's who you trust in. That's a refuge. If you look up in Deuteronomy 32, Song of Moses, he actually refers to God as a refuge. The rock, all right? But he's a living rock. This is where the analogy kind of falls short. Because God is alive. So we have this thing, a living rock. But then in verse 5, he says, you also as living stones. He says, you're one of them too. Have you ever read that? Have you ever thought, I am a living stone? It's a good thing that the NHS 
the mental health thing is full up and can't take you. Somebody would turn you in. But think about this for a sec. Living stone. Now, this is more radical than anything we've looked at yet. Remember in Psalm 1, that all flesh is grass, but the one who meditates on the word of God is going to be like a tree. And the only way to make grass a tree is by radical transformation. Rewrite the DNA in all of those cells, right? And that's what God does as you meditate in his word. But here's a step further. You're being made into a living stone. And that's interesting because we all start out as dust, which is disintegrated to start with. God scooped up the dirt, the dust, and breathed the breath of life into what he made, and then man became alive. And we've all shared in that earthiness. We've all been made like Adam. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, it's interesting that no matter how hard you pack dirt, it's still disintegrated. I was out digging in the garden, trying to, you know, get the garden ready to put seed in it and all. And I'm, I'm attacking it with a four-pronged fork. I don't know what you call those things. No gardeners here, folks. So I'm standing on this thing, and it won't go in the dirt. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this stuff is like rock. But I found out that I actually could get in it. And I kept jumping on this fork to get it into the ground. I think, man, this stuff is hard. But then I got a piece to actually come out. You know, it had grass on it, the junk you don't want. So there's root structure saying, you're not going to get us. We're holding on. I didn't actually negotiate with the grass. You don't negotiate with criminals. So anyway, I got this clump out, and I got it turned over, and I started beating it with my pitchfork. And guess what? It fell apart. And I thought, what do you know? This stuff was hard, but that's because it's packed, and that's because it's all the other dirt there, and they're going, you can't get through us. Oh, yes, I can. Pow, 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 pow. Guess what? Dust, dirt, disintegrated. There is a big difference between dirt and a stone. 
And what God is doing in our lives right now is taking us from being dirt to being a stone. Now, you think, okay, granite, basalt, stuff that comes out of volcanoes, you know, and gets really hard. You know, it's not super pretty. But what God has in mind is like diamonds, gemstones. Like you look at it and you go, wow, cool, polished, smooth, colors, glorious. So that's what you're going to end up like. Imagine to see yourself as glorified and there's all those facets and everything's polished and the light comes through it. And it's just... God is not making you into an old brick. But what he's going to make you into, what he's doing right now, is to make you something that even you will look at and go, wow, precious. Now what God is doing is taking these precious stones and fitting them together into a building. It is a spiritual house, he says in verse 5. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you're not an isolated, wonderful diamond. It is to be part of an entire structure that is a temple in which God dwells. And it says in the scripture, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. So, you know, God doesn't especially live in this exalted building that we've got right here that we exalted by putting white paint on it. And then whatever color this is, that is the exalted color here, folks. He doesn't live here waiting for us to show up, and he's kind of lonely during the week, you know, because nobody comes. He dwells in temples not made with hands. Now, he's building something permanent, and he's building it with fabulously costly Precious prepared stones. And it's a place for him to dwell. It's a holy temple. How is that going to look? 
Well, we get a glimpse of it in Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And if you read there, you'll find that it's made of precious stones and clear gold. And again, what is clear gold? We're going to find out. The foundation for the wall is composed of 12 stones. And on these stones are the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And all of them are precious gemstones. Now here's the deal. It's a foundation stone for a wall. That means it's in the ground, right? It means you're not going to see it. So in a way, why don't you just use concrete? Wouldn't that do the job? But no, says God, I'm going to make it a precious stone. And there's only 12 foundation stones for the wall. Now, if you measure the city, it's 1,500 miles in any direction. And if there's only 12 stones in the wall, that means each of these gemstones are 500 miles long. Have you ever in your life seen a 500-mile diamond? Now look, if it's literal, that would be impressive. But if it's a metaphor, the reality goes off the scale. But we're going to find out what it works out to be. Wouldn't you like to see a 500-mile diamond? And a 500-mile emerald and a 500-mile ruby? I don't know whether to take it literally or metaphor, but you know what? The metaphors are always symbols of a greater reality. And so what God is going to do is absolutely amazing. That's where we're headed. And then as his temple... We are where sacrifices are offered. And it says here in verse 5, they are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13. Therefore, by him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name and all that he is. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So on one hand, we're here to proclaim his excellency and to talk about how fabulous he is. And we also offer costly sacrifices. This is the thing about a sacrifice. It has to be costly. There's no such thing as a bargain sacrifice. A cheap offering. You know why? Because if it doesn't cost anything, it doesn't mean anything. That's why husbands, when you give your wife a present, and it turns out to be your old phone, your wife is not impressed. Because she knows. The screen is cracked, and it's slow, and it doesn't work so good. So you got a new phone and you gave your old phone to your wife as a present. Babe, I love you. 
And she goes, I love you too. You know why it's not impressive? Didn't cost anything. So husbands, do you know how to say I love you to your wife? Give her the good stuff first. And then she's going to get the idea. Wow. You know why? Because it costs something and it means something. Now David said, I will not give to the Lord a sacrifice which cost me nothing. Because I know it didn't cost me anything, and God knows it didn't cost me anything, and it doesn't mean anything. Now, what happens when God gives a sacrifice? What kind of a sacrifice does God give? Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love. How costly was that sacrifice of Jesus? It cost him everything and we'll never know. The value goes off the scale. There is no other son of God. And so when God gives a sacrifice, the cost is unimaginable and therefore it has meaning. It has meaning to God. So we're called to do the same thing. To offer up costly sacrifices. And that's where you go, gulp. This is going to cost me. And yes, it will. It's going to cost you a lot. Fortunately, we're not on our own. Because we have taken refuge. And we're connected to God. And guess what? There's more where that came from. He's the fountain of living waters that never runs dry. So if you get connected, hey, you can't outgive God. So we're going to offer up these spiritual sacrifices, just like Jesus. You know that Jesus lived by what he preached? He said, lay up your treasures in heaven. And then he went and did it. Do you think Jesus regrets giving? I don't think so. It's more blessed to give than receive. So we believe Jesus. And so we follow him. And then... That's what we do. Verse 9, we are his people. That's how God is. So that's how we are. We are holy, chosen, royal priests. God's own possession. And we're talking about his excellencies. His superiority. Because God doesn't owe us 10p. He doesn't have to do anything nice for us. Why should he give us his only son? Who are we? And so we're not his people. We haven't received mercy. And you know what he did? He gave us mercy and made us his people.
you know, we're only now getting to understand a little bit about what that means. And we go, wow. So this is a precious value. To be given eternal life, to be involved in the plan of the ages to build a dwelling of God in the Spirit, and he included me in that. Hi, I'm Rob Dingman from Bellevue, Washington, and I'm going to be included in the plan of the ages. I didn't vote myself into this. God chose. God's doing something. All I can say is, wow. Me? Now look, this is precious, valuable, and yet there are some people who do not see it that way. Verse 7, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, they don't see any precious value in Jesus whatsoever. You know, Jesus for them is that all-purpose curse word. When something doesn't go right, you kick it and then invoke the name. You know, indirectly, they're proving that Jesus really is God. Because you can only swear when you're taking the name of God in vain. Even if they don't believe, they're proving that Jesus is God. Well, who are these guys? Look at that. They're the builders. They're the builders. Now, the builders are the architects and the guys with the plans, and they tell the workers what to do. They're the authority. They're the guys in charge who tell the workers what to do. And that means they're also building a house. In fact, this word for builder means house builder, literally. So they're building a house, but what house? Whose house? You think, well, God's not in it. So it must not be God's house. It must be their own house they're building. And of course, this is, this is a pastime with these kind of people. You go to Architectural Digest magazine. You get it sometimes in waiting rooms. And it's fun because you can see what these rich people are doing to build their houses. And you can read about how they fix up a house. And this is my 47th house that I fixed up. And I've torn that fireplace out three times because it wasn't right. Until it's just the right amount of rustic. We worked on this three times till we got it the way we wanted. And are we done? Yeah, I'm going on to the next house now. Glossy pictures, fabulous house. They're building their own house. Now, God laid this stone as a precious cornerstone. And the builders looked at that stone. They looked at it. And they measured it. And they asked questions. They asked him questions. They asked his disciples questions. They're evaluating this stone. They saw his miracles, and they heard his teaching. They ate with him, and they had councils 
deliberating about him. What are we going to do with him? He claims to forgive sins, and then he heals people to prove it. But nobody can forgive sins except God alone. Who does he make himself out to be? And they said, no way. Not this guy. So they refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. They just said, no way. They arrested him. They got him condemned, and they got him killed. And when they kill you, that's as rejected as you can get. They can't reject you any more than that. This is their stamp of disapproval. Dad, we don't want you. We're sending you away. But then by that rejection, they're saying, this is not God. We are the experts. We're just saying, absolutely not. We're not having it. And then God overruled these guys. And he overruled them by raising Jesus from the dead. And you can't reverse that. He says, yet I will set my holy king on my holy hill of Zion. And like it says in Psalm 2, even if the rulers of the world take counsel, even if they say, we will not have this man rule over us, we're going to rip their chains, we're going to break it, we're going to get rid of all this stuff. And God says, no, you're not. In that Psalm, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and rip you up when his anger is kindled just a little. Don't fuss with him. So, the interesting thing is they stumbled over the stone. They said, not him, and then they tripped over him. Now, the thing is, you cannot ignore Jesus. You can say, well, I don't want to play. I am not a part of this game. I'm neutral. I'm not for him. I'm not against him. I'm not subscribing. But see, you don't trip over something you're looking at. You're tripping over something you're not expecting to be there. And it is there. And all that means is you cannot get around Jesus. You can't say, well, I'm not playing this game. You are. And if you don't deal with Jesus, you're going to trip over him. And you're going to go down hard. So, Jesus said about himself, as that stone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Did you get that? Like dust. If you don't take refuge in Jesus, you stay dust. And you beat dust hard enough, you're disintegrated. You have no refuge. So, the gospel comes to us as a command. Did you notice here? They are disobedient. The gospel comes to us as a command, not a suggestion. 
You know, we've made it sort of this, would you please give Jesus kind of a thought or two? He's so lonely, won't you please accept Jesus? And it's more like, you know what? Jesus is coming to judge the earth. And he's going to destroy all wickedness. And right now, you have a chance for amnesty. And he's calling for you to turn around, lay down your weapons, and submit to him. And if you take refuge in him, you're going to survive. But if you don't take refuge in him, my hands are clean. I've warned you. Your dust is on your own head. Your blood is on your own head. You're going to die. And if you're not listening, that's tough. I've warned you. Do you get that? That was a little more Jesus' attitude. He said, if they don't listen to you, shake off the dust. Say, I don't even want anything to do with you. You're going down. Not offensively, but just this is the truth. This is why you need Jesus. So, that's the command. Have you obeyed that command? Are you listening to Jesus? Now, when you submit to Jesus and turn to him and take refuge in him, you find all these privileges. Now, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him? I hope you're finding the blessings. Are you finding them? Because here's the problem. If you don't know these blessings, they're not going to mean much to you. And Peter, what he's doing here is making a transition into his main theme, which is the idea of persevering and suffering for Jesus in a fallen world. Because the principle is it's suffering and humility now, it's glory then. It was true for Jesus. He suffered in his humility, and now he's glorified. It's the same with us. So if we understand that, we're going to realize, man, I'm, I'm right on schedule. Do you know what it takes to make a precious gemstone? Unbelievable heat, unimaginable pressure. Is anybody here going through heat and pressure? Guess what? You're right on schedule. You're in the gem factory. No, no, not the gem factory. Yes. The gem factory. You. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All that heat and pressure. Oh, boy. It's all true. <laughs> Just like he said. But see, you can draw comfort from that. He doesn't mean it to kill you. This is way too inefficient to kill you. He means to transform you. And you will be transformed. Now, this is the theme of the ages. This is the purpose for which God made you, is to not keep you dirt, but 
that you would be transformed and be a holy dwelling of God in the Spirit. And if you don't know what the blessings are, there's no reason to keep suffering. So you have to understand these blessings. And there are those people who give their expert testimony that this stuff isn't true. And they'll tell you boldly to your face, this is a bunch of ancient myth. This is exactly like Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, living in Sumer. This is all this old legends. I have a copy of Gilgamesh in my library if you want to read it. But I've had people say to my face, this is all Gilgamesh. And I go, no, it's not. See, I read this stuff, and it's not. But they want to tell you that it's a fairy tale, a fable. And the problem is that the builders have authority and power now. They're in the government. They're in your job. They can make life difficult for people who believe in Jesus. Does everybody believe me? You know, they missed the miracles that Jesus was doing. He was healing multitudes. He would go through a crowd and they would touch his garment and they would all be made healed. It was just like mass healing. And, and these guys would miss all the miracles and they're missing the miracle now. Here we are, a whole bunch of us in a room from all different nations, all different skin colors, languages, cultures, we're all completely different. And we shouldn't be in the same room. It defies logic. We should all be in the same club. All of us should look roughly alike. We should all speak the same language, have the same interest, but every one of us is completely different. And we love one another. Now that's a miracle. Because everybody else out there is having a real hard time with racism and with discrimination, conflicts. Nations believe they ought to control the world. Other nations sort of resent that. Just read in the paper today that England is having a problem with China, but China has bought like 300 billion pounds worth of property and infrastructure in England. So, and, and 80 out of 200 huge purchases were just made in the last year. So China is buying England. But England has a problem with China. What happens when China forecloses? Conflict. But we're not like that. You know what? Everybody here loves everybody. Or else. <laughs> we do. And we don't hate anybody. You know, we don't hate China. 
We're not racist. We don't hate LGBTQ+. We really don't. But we do warn everybody. We tell everybody, you know what? Jesus is the only Lord, the only Savior. He's coming. You had better get ready. Flee to the refuge. Now, you know, all of these privileges, you've got to be aware of them, and you've got to keep them fresh in your mind. Fresh. They have to be something that's in your mind all the time. Because when you forget them, that's when you go into trouble. So, when you keep them fresh, your heart is going to be full. And nothing outside is going to move you. But when your heart is not full of these things, nature hates a vacuum and something else is going to take its place. So what is uppermost in your mind? Do you think about the fact that I have a refuge whenever that difficult situation hits? Is that your first thought? To say, oh, that's okay, I got a refuge. See, it has to be just like quick draw. Whatever it is, have an argument with my wife. Good, I got a refuge. We'll work it out. Oh, something went wrong. Got a refuge. Do you think about that? Are you taking advantage of the fact that you have a refuge? Or in reality, are you an endangered species? I'm the only one left and they're going to kill me next. See? So whatever it is, you've got to figure out a way to keep this stuff fresh. That's your homework. Refuge, transformation, that's why I'm going through the heat and the pressure. Spiritual sacrifices, holy nation, priesthood, royal Find some way to make this part of your mentality, the way you think. Like, what would happen if you took, you know, space them out and take one a day? Say, today, I'm going to think about refuge. Tomorrow, I'm going to think about the fact that I'm a diamond. Just all day long, diamond. Or maybe I want to be... <laughs> uh 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 Probably an emerald. Uh -uh -uh. They found it in the attic. I mean, what would happen if you did that? Wouldn't it change the way you think about stuff? You got to keep it fresh. You know that I'm, I'm meditating in, in Psalm 106 right now, and it says that Israel did not remember God's abundant loving kindnesses, but they rebelled at the Red Sea. And like, that's at the very beginning. That's after 10 plagues. And they forgot. It's like, how could you forget, guys? That was just a week ago. For some reason, they didn't keep it fresh in their minds. And you know, whenever they forget, they always went wrong. But when they remember, 
even though they are absolutely undeserving and rejected by God, they can still come to him and say, God, have mercy on us, and he will. So this becomes the most important thing you can do, is keep this fresh. Don't let it get stale. Refuge! Woohoo! Diamond! Woohoo! Whatever your little victory dance and song is. So, remember Jesus and be full of Him. All right? It's a privilege. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you know everything. And you have a plan. And you're working out that plan in time. And you're explaining flat out what it's going to be. And even then, we can hardly get our minds around it. Because the reality is going to be so far greater. And I pray that you would enlarge our minds and help us to remember. Help us to think about what is true, what is right, what is noble what is beautiful, worthy of praise, these things to keep them fresh. We're going to need a refuge tomorrow. Please help us to run and take refuge in you all day, all week. Help us to keep these things fresh in our minds. Fill our hearts. And Lord, forgive us for not thinking on these things, for ignoring them. And then we find we trip and fall. We don't want to do that. Forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and lead us in the everlasting way. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.